Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in the Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all, to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now the of my bones and flesh. Of my flesh she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of men. That she is why a man leaves this, his father and mother and is in reunited to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they filled no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the 
tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye also and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves then the man and his wife heard the sound of the lord god as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the lord god and long the trees of the garden hey i'm all done with the lawn you missed a spot Hey, some student leaders and I planned and led a whole youth service today, and I even got to share the message. Well, I heard the sound and PowerPoint were a total disaster. How did I do at my first time babysitting for our family? You left all this food out, and there's garbage all over the table. Thanks. For nothing. Hmm. These are only three of dozens of phrases I heard as a child. I heard them so much that no matter what I did or how hard I tried or how well I did it, there was always this little voice whispering, you missed a spot, you messed up. And that's all that seemed to matter. You did a terrible job. I know now that this voice is a foul liar and that the truth is that God loves me and he is delighted in me for who I am and he will never love me any more or any less because of what I've done or what I haven't done. Hmm. But if I'm honest, I really struggle to silence that whispering voice because part of me still kind of believes it. I believe those words, and it can really be hard when I'm actually listening to that voice, because it's been around for so long. You guys pray with me. Father, we turn our minds and our hearts uh, towards you and towards each other. May your word stir in our hearts. May it roll and ruminate in our minds. May your spirit give us what we need today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, God, be pleasing to you. Teach us what it means that shame is such a primary weapon of evil and how it's been around since the very beginning. Give us hope. 
Give us peace. Amen. Well, thank you to our readers. Uh, I thought it was so, so good to read that nice and slow because it is rich with meaning and intention. So if you open to the opening chapters of Genesis, you will see, first of all, it's important to remember that when we go to Genesis, we're not going to a book of history and we're not going to a book of science. We're not even going to a book of fiction. We're going to a book about God. It's a theological book. It's the story about God and us and the world. And while I don't think that the Bible contradicts anything from history and science, that's not primarily why it's written. So we've got to tune in to what is this story telling us about God, about ourselves, and about the world. Now, it starts with God being intentional and joyful and creative in his work. He starts by separating things, separating light and dark, and separating the outer space from the inner atmosphere, and separating the land from the sea. And then he turns around and he fills those places. First, he fills the stars and the planets into the outer atmosphere, if you will, the outer space. Then he fills the sky with, um, with birds. Then he fills the uh, sea with fish. Remember, anything that swims would be fish, so he didn't classify octopi or whales or dolphins, everything that swam was a fish. So anyway, and then he fills the land with plants and animals. And this culmination of his creative work in Genesis 1 and 2 is that he creates humans, male and female, made in the image of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to bear his image reflect his glory, and bring God's potential for life forth. His creative and joyful and good dominion, it's called, over the earth. That's what it means, according to Genesis 1 and 2, to be human. To be people who bring forth this goodness, who reflect God's image, who do so in community because it's, we can't do that alone. And it's so, so good. And like Jojo read, there's like this little epilogue to the story. And it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now of all the ways that the writer could end the story to describe the spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical state of humanity, the writer chose naked and unashamed. I mean, I think I would have chosen something different. How about you? How about they were perfect and they felt awesome? Yeah. Or they were strong and they felt confident. I don't know who doesn't want to feel confident today. Or even they were holy and they felt happy. Holy hasn't even come up in the scripture yet. Or they were smart and they felt fearless. Those would be just a few of the things that I would have chosen to capstone this creative work. But instead, it's an emphasis on no shame and no clothes. 
Now, it's really not about clothes. It has actually really nothing to do with clothing and everything to do with the ways that we protect and we cover and we hide who we truly are to the world and the people around us. See, to be naked and unashamed is to be comfortable in your own skin. To be naked and unashamed is to know who you truly are and share who you truly are with the world and the people around you. It's this radical vulnerability with complete trust. That's what it means to be human in the Garden of Eden. Remember, Eden in Hebrew is delight. So this is the Garden of Delight. This is a place of beauty and intimacy and abundance. It's maybe the best way to picture it is like a newborn baby in the arms of her overjoyed mother. Radical vulnerability and complete trust. It's this feeling that even if I don't have everything I need, I know I'm going to be okay. And this is what the shrewd snake is questioning. Because radical vulnerability with complete trust is a choice that I have to live into. And that choice is a little scary. So when he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is where shame starts its insidious work. I thought shame happened after the first sin, but Dr. Kirk Thompson, who writes the book, The Soul of Shame, says pretty, pretty profoundly that shame starts its work well before that first sin. And it starts by spreading doubt. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that one down. Because I think doubt works like a spilled bucket of water. Spilled bucket of water seeps into whatever cracks are closest and deepest. Dr. Kirk Thompson goes into like even our neural pathways as like a PhD person, he writes very in-depth. It was kind of like I felt like I was swimming in the deep end for several days um, about how these neural pathways, when we start to tell ourselves something, even if it's shame, if we repeatedly say that, those neural pathways get deeper and wider. They turn from gravel roads to interstates. It's just fast information moving as frequently and as quickly as possible. And that's how shame starts. It spreads this doubt. And it causes Eve in this story to question God, question her recollection of the facts about God, and most importantly, question the nature of her relationship with God. Was God really good? Is God holding out on us? What, what did God really say? And I think that doubt causes us to question too. And like Eve, it causes us to question and to figure out the answer on our own. Think about how easy it could have been for Eve to go, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's what God said. Maybe I should go check with God. But the serpent doesn't suggest they go check the facts with God, nor does he ask Adam what he remembers, because he's right there too, because the clever serpent isn't interested in the correct information. 
Shame and doubt are being used to distort what's true. See, if doubt is the first tool of shame and evil in the world, then distorting truth is the second. See, the woman says back to the serpent, well, yeah, we may eat from any tree of the fruit from the the fruit, any of the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the woman distorts ever so slightly what God says and I think it's super easy to judge her for it. But we do this all the time. Think about it. When you or I have been in situations, especially with another person, and they've caused any amount of distress or our confidence is shaken, or maybe a little bit of shame has come in, like maybe a teacher that that asks you about certain people in the group work participation. Uh, I don't want to say anything bad about someone else, even if they weren't pulling their weight. I I guess I I don't quite remember how that worked. Or, you know, uh, a boss asks you about a certain interaction that you had with a coworker in the last week or two, and you know it wasn't quite the way that you would have wanted it to go. And so in that moment, you were trying to remember how that exactly did go down. And I'm guessing, because this has happened to me, that like little bits of shame and little bits of doubt have come in, and all of a sudden you can't quite remember the facts. I don't know if I, I don't want to throw myself under the bus, but I don't know if I want to say anything bad about my co I'm not sure how that went down. Maybe I remember it, remembering it differently. I don't think that it's too much of a stretch to think that the serpent is implying, you will certainly not die, this. Don't think of death as this threat that you need to worry about right now. Think about that later. God just said that to keep you from being like him and acquiring the information that he has. God might be holding out on you, especially about this knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want you to have what he has. God doesn't want you to be as close and connected to him as you think he does. Maybe you're not as special as you think. In fact, you are less than you think. You are not enough. Now, that's not exactly what's in the text, but I think it's a safe jump. And all of this is felt and sensed by us and imagined way before we logically think about it and can articulate it. How many of us, when we're feeling that moment of shame, go, oh, Yes, I'm feeling shame right now. And this is how it feels. I feel like it's distorting where I'm really at. And um, it's causing me to like, cover up something that, that I don't really want you to know about. And yet, logically, I know that if I come clean with that, there's a good chance that you are going to meet me with respect, or at least you're going to meet me with curiosity. But we can't do that. All of a sudden, there's things psychologically, physically, and emotionally, and spiritually that are going on inside of us that none of us were really equipped to handle. Even those of us that had parents that were therapists (laughs) still have a hard time handling this. 
And remember, in this moment, you have to picture a woman who is naked and unashamed, except now she's a little bit shamed because doubt has crept into her mind. And now there's this distortion of the truth. And there's Adam who's right there in the midst of it. And no one is saying, hey, where's God? We should ask God. God did tell us about this because doubt wants us to figure the answer out on our own. Again, shame is not concerned with the facts. It's far more concerned about your and my emotional connection, security, and confidence. Shame erodes those things like the accuser of our soul who comes to God in Job chapter 1 when God is saying, do you see Job? Do you see my servant? Do you see how he's righteous, how he walks with me, how he's blameless? Well, God, if you just let me attack him, he will curse you. Now, whether that is a righteous prosecuting attorney-like accuser or it is an insidious attack of an accuser, nonetheless, there is an accuser of our soul. And he wants to break our confidence and more importantly, our connection with our creator. So the first tool is this spreading of doubt. The second tool is this distortion of truth. And the third tool is this disruption of relationships. See, humans work like, and Krista actually very eloquently shared earlier, humans were made for connection and community. If ever, there's no sin in the garden There's just this presence of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's right next to the tree of life. And yet, in this beautiful story where there's not sin, there's this moment where God says it's not good for the human to be alone. Again, God didn't say it's not good for the human to not be intelligent, which I would say, actually, yeah, we don't want a lot of dumb people. We want smart people. So that isn't good. But... God didn't say that. He didn't say, it's not good for the human to not be skinny, which probably is fine. But he didn't say, it's not good for the human to be ripped or rich or powerful. Now, I give you those because so often when we feel shame, when we feel the distortion of truth, when we feel this spreading of doubt, when we feel this disruption of relationship, we want to come because we feel like we're not enough and we want to bring something We want to bring our intelligence. We want to bring our strength. We want to bring our confidence, even if it's false. We want to bring anything we can to try and feel like we're enough in that moment. And actually, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. What we most need in those moments of shame is community. It's connection. And Adam and Eve had that in the garden. They had it in this moment. They just didn't see it. 
See, once shame starts doubting God, distorting truth, and disrupting relationships, it's so easy for us to do one of two things. We can do what the man does, which is just stay silent. I'm feeling all this shame. I'm not sure what to do with it, so I'll just stay silent. Or we do what the woman does. It has nothing to do with male or female, everything to do with being human. And what does the woman do? She fulfills a legitimate longing in an illegitimate way. There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be significant, but there's everything wrong with running over other people to get there. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be talented, but there's everything wrong with wanting to use those talents to try and feel like I have worth in God's sight because of what I do. To fulfill a legitimate longing in an illegitimate way. See, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, remember, all the fruit in the Garden of Eden was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Every single thing. It was just that this thing, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was also desirable for gaining wisdom. Because if I have wisdom then maybe I can be independent of God. Maybe I won't need people. And she took it and she ate it and she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So we cannot blame the woman. Can I just get an amen for that, please? We cannot blame the woman because the man was right there the whole time. They decided that the one who was trustworthy could not be trusted. Doubt had spread in there. They decided that the fruit that was forbidden should have been theirs in the first place anyway. Why did God restrict this? Why did he put this boundary on us? Notice that the boundary is in the middle of the garden. We always think of boundaries being on the edges and then like wanting to run and play by the edge And that's the idea of being in rebellion or in independence, going outside of the boundary. But the boundary is in the very middle. I think that means that this idea of radical vulnerability and complete trust are always a choice that we have before us. Every day, in every moment. Think about a teenager that's seeking independence. A legitimate longing, but possibly filled in an illegitimate way by running off, by claiming their independence from their parents who actually might have wisdom. Or an employee who gets overlooked for a promotion. Legitimate longing to be promoted, an illegitimate way to then try and run that person over, spread bad reports about them, or a spouse who legitimately longs for their partner, but the other partner feels disrespected, and so they pull away. And so they try to receive what they 
aren't getting, and then they turn away and try to find it somewhere else. Legitimate longing, illegitimate way. And see, here's the deal. We know this does not last. You will not certainly die. May not be immediate, but it is absolutely certain. Think about what Psalm 32 says. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away as though I was groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, the writer is saying to God. My strength was sapped like the heat of summer. He continues, when he confesses, he he can find strength, but he says, don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by a bit or a bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. I mean, think about that, this horse and mule which have no understanding and must be controlled. The man and the woman in seeking independence actually just find more dependence. Genesis 3, 7 says, when then both the eyes of both of them were opened. It does not say, then they gained the wisdom to open their eyes and see what God wanted them to see or to see what the serpent wanted them to see. It was their eyes were opened by someone or something else. In seeking independence, they really just transferred their dependence from one thing to another. New chains. And really, the chains that God had given us, if you want to call them that, were here's your work, care and work in the garden, be fully functioning, free will humans, mature, and dependent on God. Those are not oxymorons or incompatible. It is actually possible to do that. In fact, that's how Jesus lived his life, fully dependent on God. He says things like, the the son only does what the father tells him to. Where the father is at work, the son is at work too. And if the father's not at work, the son isn't at work. Fully functioning, mature adult, and fully dependent on God. It's just that that doesn't go over well in our society. And their response to these new feelings is to cover and hide and fear what once brought joy and security. Because again, way beyond my clothes or lack of clothes is this feeling that shame drenches us with, that I am not enough. I shared it in my news and notes this week, if you read it, that I listened to shame about this finance series and like, well, I don't do that. I don't write out my budget. I don't know enough about that. I I shouldn't be the one to say that. That's shame at work in my life. And this is just the start of shame. So you heard at the beginning of this message, um, Mary share a story of shame. It wasn't her story of shame. It was a story of shame. Because I believe we all have stories of shame. And if you'd be so vulnerable, I would love to hear them. You can tell me, you can tell someone on the staff. We can make it as personal or as anonymous as you feel comfortable. 
but we have many stories of shame and we would love to have yours because you'll find out as you share that that you are not alone. And this is just the start, but before we conclude, where is the hope? What can we do? Well, the hope actually isn't found in what we can do. It's in what God does. Did you catch it? When the man and the woman were completely messed up, when they kept messing up, when they were covering up and hiding and shaming and blaming, they were just dripping in shame. They're still in the garden of delight. They're still in the place of beauty and intimacy and abundance. They have not been kicked out. They have not left. If they can see it, if they can see where they are, they're still in this place where God is. And we see God on the move. We think when we've messed up and done something and keep messing up that God is completely away from us, that we could never come back to him. God is actually coming to us. The story says that God is walking in the cool of the day. He's pursuing them even though they're drenched in shame. And he says, a question. Now, I know we're almost done, but let's do an all play. Everybody can participate. Why might God ask a question? To get us to think. That's great, yeah. To invite truth, yeah. Because we won't ask it. He wants us to know if we know the answer. Because it's not like God doesn't know the answer, right? He's God. What else? Anything else? Mm. He enjoys dialogue and questions invite conversation. Thanks, Pete. Do you believe that? God enjoys dialogue. He enjoys talking to us. He doesn't enjoy talking at us. He enjoys talking to us, and questions invite that. And God asks a particular question, where are you? Now, why might he ask that question? Why might he ask the question, where are you? You can all play. Where are you emotionally? Sure. It's not threatening. Do you want to say more about that? Oh, do you catch that? Like when we're when we're sitting in shame, it's usually about what I have done or how I feel about myself because of what I have done? It's a very non-threatening question. Oh, that's good. Anything else? You think it's possible that they don't know where they are? That they don't see that they're in the Garden of Eden, even though their image of God is broken in that moment? 
that God's love has not changed in that moment, that God has not gone from this God of abundance, beauty, love, and, and become this God of distance and wrath? No. No, God's love hasn't changed. In that moment of where are you, it's do you see where you are? Do you see that you are still with me, that you are still one, that you are still in the garden, in the center of the garden, <laughs> that God wants to restore relationship with us? He's like that father in the prodigal son story, the son who leaves and the, the father doesn't chase him because he knows it's not really going to do anything to chase an adult child. But he's going to wait every day and he's going to look every day and he's going to, I believe, pray every day. And when that son comes back, he is going to run and embrace him because he longs for that relationship to be restored. That's not just about that story. That's about us. So, that's the hope. But what can we do? Well, we can do what the man and the woman were invited to do. Which is actually, when the doubt starts to seep in, we could talk to God. We could start talking to God rather than talking about God. Did God really say you can't eat from the tree of the garden? Oh no, God didn't say that, but he did say that all the fruit, but we couldn't touch this one. They are all having a conversation about God, but not with God. The way that I start or stop the slide into shame is by talking with God. And if your neck deep in shame, don't just start talking with God, but actually have the courage and the vulnerability to ask the, answer the question, where are you? As we move into a time of communion, admitting the answer to that question, where are you, is one of the most vulnerable things that we can do something that we're all invited to do. See, God wants us to come out of hiding. He wants us to receive his grace and he wants to clothe us in his sacrificial love. Richard Rohr said it this way, human strength admires holding on. Human weakness is about letting go into the divine other. Human strength admires personal independence, but God's mystery is mutual dependence and interdependence. God in his trinity is about total intercommunication with all things and all being, but we as humans practice hiding and protecting ourselves. But yet God seems to totally disclose himself for the sake of creating and loving the other. I know about you, but I'm going to have to read that a few more times this week. See, this is how Jesus lived in complete vulnerability and radical trust or radical vulnerability and complete trust with God the Father, and we killed him for it. And yet, through his death and resurrection, he makes a way for each of us to have eternal life with him now, to live into that vulnerability and trust with the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, 
Jesus invites all of his followers, the ones who will betray him and the ones who will deny him and all the ones in between to this table to commune with him. It comes at a religious festival called Passover, this ritual that they do every year and Jesus transforms that into a personal relationship with himself. The meal is sometimes called the Last Supper or communion or even this word Eucharist. Eucharist in Greek means good grace. You is good, charis is grace. Think about that. When we're battling shame and we don't have any room for grace, Jesus invites us to his table of good grace. He doesn't offer us theology or rules. He instead offers us good grace. When he dies on the cross for our sin and our shame, he offers us good grace. Jesus makes this exchange for our shortcomings and our sin with his good grace. And if you're going to overcome shame in your life, you have to learn and keep learning like I am to receive God's good grace. Now, this table is for those who feel certain and for those who feel frightened. The table is for those who feel filled by the Spirit and those who really want to be filled but aren't sure. It's for those who want to come to him and those who are afraid to come but are still present. And the table does not belong to us or this church. It belongs to Jesus. And it's he who invites us all to share in this cup of life everlasting. So, when the time came for the meal, Jesus said to his disciples, I have eagerly, deci- uh, I've eagerly anticipated e- eating this meal with you. For I tell you that I won't eat it in this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And during the meal, Jesus took bread. He lifted it up and he thanked God for it. And he broke it and he shared it. And he said, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and again he lifted it up and he gave thanks to God for it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, just poured out as a sacrifice for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll have two stations up front. We'll have a gluten-free station that is also a station where you can pray and have extended time of prayer. And we invite you to come when you're ready. take a piece of bread, you can dip it in the cup, and you can partake of communion. Most merciful God, we know that if we confess our sins to you, 
you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, you can cleanse us of the shame that we have washed over ourselves, that some of us feel like we are drenched and drowning in. God, but in this moment, we choose to acknowledge that you are on the move, that you come towards us, that you ask us questions, that you ask us where we are, that you invite us to respond, that you want to have conversation with us even after we've run away from you. So I pray, God, that we would confess our sin, our shortcomings, God, our doubts, our disconnections, God, that we've not loved you with our whole heart, that we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. God, that we are sorry, that we do repent, that we want to receive your forgiveness and we want to receive your spirit. And we know that when we ask with our heart in line with you, that you answer. So God, would you help us to believe that not just in this meal, but in all times, that you delight in us that you love us and that you want to enjoy relationship with us. For your glory.